When it was the evening on that day, the first of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples were closed for fear of the Judeans, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you all. And having said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Messiah. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you all, just as the living God has sent me, so I send you all. When Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Messiah. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And within eight days his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, through the, though the doors were shut, and stood among them and said, Peace be with you all. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Bring your hand and put it in my side, and do not doubt, rather believe. Thomas answered him, saying, My Savior and my God. Jesus said to him, Was it because you have seen me that you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. Before we get started on the content for today, I want to let you know about something I'm pretty excited about, um, which is that we have created a new pathway for people to kind of interact with the sermons and the content here. Um, we're going to have a number, a phone number, up on the screen, there it is, nice and small. Luciana didn't want it to be too. <laughs> Our tech team was like, you're going to have a big, ugly number behind your head. Nice and small there. Um, so there it is, uh, up on the screen. That is a number that you can text at any time, um, but especially during the sermon. If you have a thought or a question, if there's something that intrigues you, makes you upset, <clears throat> it's bigger now. Our tech team loves feedback, so. Uh, <laughs> Luciana especially. Um, so you can text that number at any point um, with just thoughts that you're having, things that are coming up for you um, during sermons or during church or throughout the week. Um, but we will receive those communications and sort of compile them. Uh, it's going to inform a new a monthly event that we're going to be doing on the, is it the second Second Wednesday of the night of the month, whatever it's May 10th um, for May, but uh, we're going to be gathering in the living room for something we're calling Echo. Uh, in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe that through the grace of God, like all all creatures, all humanity, all creation has been imbued with the grace of God, and so when we are trying to listen 
for the voice of God, we can actually sometimes best hear it when it is amplified through the voices of God's good creation, one another. And so uh, instead of just hearing my voice and trying to find God's voice in it, we're creating an additional space for folks to come together and discuss what's coming up for you. Um, and, and a lot of what we're going to use to guide those discussions is whatever folks are, are sending. So please, um, save that, that number in your phone. Don't be shy about taking your phone out during service, texting, um, and, and sharing what's coming up for you so that the community can have a richer discussion um, and more clearly hear the voice of God through your reflections. But today, we got our good friend Tom. Our good friend Thomas. Poor Thomas. Doubting Thomas. How many of you all have, like, positive associations with Doubting Thomas? All right, we got, we got a couple Thomas stands. All right, how many people are like, oh, Thomas? Slightly negative associations with Thomas? All right, we don't have too many haters. Uh, but I got, <laughs> I feel like Thomas gets a pretty bad rap. Like, Thomas had been chilling with Jesus and his followers for years had been through like quite a lot. And actually, this is not the only time, the doubting time for which he's named and known. This is not the only time that he actually gets dialogue in the scriptures. I, I see some heads popping up. Yes, it is surprising because this is all we hear about him. You do one doughty thing, all of a sudden you're doubting Thomas. But Thomas was a really passionate follower and believer. Thomas was curious and committed and he actually went, after the resurrection um, and the beginning of the church, went east to teach and ultimately became the patron saint of, of the Christians of India. Thomas is like a very committed dude. And yet here we have this image of him as just, you know, a doubter. And I think one of the reasons that we have such mixed feelings about doubting Thomas is because it feels so dangerous to doubt Right? How many of us have been told that doubting is evidence of sin or that doubting itself is a sin? Yeah, seeing a lot of hands now. Not shy about answering that one. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of baggage about doubting. Doubting is a healthy and wonderful thing. Skepticism is something that, that allows us to be discerning. Now, I might just say that because, <laughs> because I have been a skeptical person in my life. Ask my parents and they will tell you that even as a child, like, they could tell me that there was a brick wall in front of me, but I would have to find out by walking into it. And I'm, I'm not making that metaphor up. That's like what, <laughs> that's the narrative of my childhood, right? So, so when I hear Thomas being like, hey, we've all been through a lot. Maybe we haven't gotten a lot of sleep. You guys say you've seen zombie Jesus. I'm going to need some science. I'm going to need some proof. So, like, I can relate to that. I, I don't just simply believe what people tell me. And I think that that's uh, served me in many ways. But it also has meant that I have to be right in the thick of things in order to fully believe. Now, some of you know I have what could be considered radical politics. I'm very publicly uh, an abolitionist calling for the end of policing and prisons. I, I earned those opinions, though, through being right up in the action. These are not just theories to me. 
The reason that I call for an end to policing is because when I was 17, I had a terrifying experience with the Chicago cops who had guns trained at my head, but when they saw my face, because I had been wearing a hoodie, they said the quiet part out loud and saying, we thought you were black, lowering their guns and apologizing to me. They sent me on my way. I was buying drugs. That's what they thought I was doing also when they thought I was black. Nothing had changed except their perception of the color of my skin. And that made me radically rethink policing. It also made me take seriously what the black folks in my life have said about their experience of the police. Because I had experienced it firsthand. I am an abolitionist. I believe that we don't need prisons. I think we can do better than prisons. But I wasn't an abolitionist until I got incarcerated. <laughs> I spent two months in federal prison because of international peace work that I did. And I didn't go into prison an abolitionist, but I sure came out one. I experienced firsthand the violence of that system, the cruelty of banishment, the radically unhealing experience of being torn from your community of support. I saw that it doesn't do what it says it does. And it turns out I had applied my skepticism to the wrong thing. Instead of being skeptical, doubting, discerning about the system of power that said it was okay to lock people up, especially for some reason black and brown people, I took my skepticism to the people who had been labeled criminals. I took my skepticism to our potential as a community saying, well, what would we do? I can't imagine a world beyond prisons. Therefore, we must need them. My skepticism was entirely in the wrong place. One of the most radicalizing experiences that I had where I can pinpoint a change because I witnessed the wounds of others was when I was 19. I went to some Christian conference and heard a woman speak about her experience at the border of the U.S. and Mexico. Now, I had never really thought that much about immigration. This was in 2006. But there was a kind of avoidance in my gut. I thought, this is complicated. You can't just have open borders. <laughs> Lo and behold. <laughs> I had heard that there was a need. I heard there was a need, there was something happening in that room for me. The Holy Spirit was inviting me into a place that I had not been before, and I decided to trust. Now, I brought with me my skepticism about people who were choosing to cross this border. And I kept with me my somehow benefit of the doubt given to the U.S. government about how borders were supposed to work. My skepticism was in the wrong place. But I heard there was a need, and so I went down. I heard people were dying, and that sounded like a problem. So I went to the border. I went to the winding paths through the desert. I didn't see a lot of people at first, but I saw huge heaps of trash filled with abandoned heirlooms and clothing and teddy bears, items that didn't make the journey. I saw the border patrol and the snarling attitude of the Border Patrol with their war wagons, which were just pickup trucks with metal cages on the back of them to catch and capture human beings. 
it didn't look very different from animal control. I saw buses full of migrants who had been rounded up, caught in the desert by Border Patrol, put in those cages, accumulated on buses, and then driven to the Mexican border and unceremoniously dumped on the Mexico side. Didn't matter where those migrants had originated from. It didn't matter that most of them weren't Mexican. It didn't matter to the U.S. government. Now, at the time, my Spanish was trash. And like a, like a good 19-year-old white kid, I showed up in Mexico thinking I can help. So I asked what I was capable of. And the leadership there said, you need to know three phrases. Necesita agua? Do you need water? Necesita comida? Do you need food? And most shocking to me, tiene ampollas? Do you have blisters? Now, when people were starving and dying of dehydration in the desert, it surprised me to learn that one of the things to make the list was blisters. But that's because in my privilege, blisters had only been an annoyance. If you have been marching for your survival through the desert for several days, maybe it has rained a couple of those days, you've been walking through mud, your socks are saturated, and yet you are walking miles and miles and miles. You can develop blisters. Those blisters can become extremely painful. If they open, they can become infected. If they are infected and untreated for too long, you develop sores on your feet that cannot heal. And if those sores cannot heal, your foot may need to be amputated. My job at the border was to wash people's feet, to receive people who had been abandoned on the Mexican side of the border, who were hungry and thirsty, but also in danger of losing their limbs, and now without the hope they had at the beginning of their journey, that they might find a livable life. And so, with my insufficient Spanish, I kneeled on the ground in front of strangers who offered me their wounds. I held feet in my hands and I tried as gently as I could to wash and bandage people's feet. And as I put my fingers into the holes in their feet, I thought, my Lord, what have we done? What are we doing? And I believed. I believed that the way that we chose to close and police our borders is cruel and is killing people and that something needs to change. I believed. And Jesus says to me, was it because you have seen that you believed? Bless those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus does this for Thomas. The strength of their relationship, their proximity, what they've been through gives them the kind of trust that when Thomas says, I'm having a hard time, Jesus, Jesus says, all right, 
Put your hands on my body. Feel my wounds. Feel the violence that has been afflicted, inflicted upon me. But that is a gift. That is a gift Jesus gives Thomas. And it may not be fair of Thomas to ask. It is the strength of their relationship that causes Jesus to choose to offer that gift, that proximity, that knowledge, to see and touch. And Thomas believes. But Jesus also says, bless those who have not seen and yet believe. Some of us who don't directly experience oppression do see and touch it by virtue of strong relationship. How many straight and cis parents have come to believe only because their kid came out as queer or trans? Not enough. But many. Many. And it is a gift. It is a gift to receive knowledge in that way, to have an experience that allows you to see and believe the violence. And yet, there is always this wound. Where were you before? Why did you have to see and touch it? How did you have to get so close to the wound in order to believe me? Why did I have to go to the border to believe? Why did I need to go to prison to believe? Why did I need a gun pointed at my head to believe? The cost to marginalized people when we say, prove it, is so high. It's one thing to be a single person challenging systems of power. That's where our healthy skepticism comes in. Our skepticism, our doubt, should be targeted towards the empire when we say, let us challenge the dominant narrative of experience. When we say, this universal story is not my story, not the story of my loved ones. When we push back on those things, when we take our skepticism to the prison, to the border, to the police, to the church, that is holy and good. But what about when those systems of power, the government, the church, or people whose experiences align with those dominant narratives demand proof from marginalized people when they claim they're hurting? We see a parallel to the Thomas story every time a person with fibromyalgia says, I'm in pain, and a doctor says, prove it. When a woman says, me too, and the men in her life say, prove it. When a black man says, the police targeted me, and the media says, prove it. When a child says, I'm trans, and cutting off my HRT may kill me. And the government says, prove it. We are seeing the way aggressive calls to prove it from people in power demeans people, upholds every system that targets them, and delays the critical interventions they are asking for. People want to be seen and understood. People need to be believed about who they are and what it is like to be them, especially when they suffer. All of us here <clears throat> are a mixture of identities. 
And many of us in this room, in this community online, many of us have overlapping identities of dominance and marginalization. We are some parts privileged, other parts oppressed. For those dominant identities that you hold, for the spaces in which you are in a position of power, I want you to reflect about how much you've learned from relationship with folks who didn't share those same identities. From people bearing witness to you. From people offering up their wounds for your learning. We need to know and acknowledge that the cost of doing that is extraordinarily high. And we need to honor that loving relationship might create the conditions where people choose to pay that cost to be seen and understood by the people they trust. It is, in fact, a Christ-like choice to speak out of your identities of marginalization. Most of us then also have some identity of oppression, some experience of non-dominance. And I want you to think about any time you have exposed a wound to someone who didn't share that experience, a time that you have let them touch that vulnerable, hurting part of you so that they understood, so that they saw you better. That was a gift. That was a risk you took and a gift you gave to help those that you love and trust understand what you've been through, who you are, and what world we live in. And Jesus tells us here that you never have to. You are never obligated for the sake of the kingdom. You are never required to let anyone put their hands into your wounds for their sake. It is a choice, a gift you can give willingly if you like, but you are not required for the sake of the kingdom. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. We don't need to make the marginalized prove anything. We need to take that doubt, that doubt that has been trained within us. Empire trains us to question the oppressed much more harshly than those in power. When Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first, when we talk about the great reversal, this is one of the things that needs to be flipped entirely on its head. Let us take our trust away from the empire, away from systems of domination and power, away from those, those powers and principalities that have created violence in the world. Let us revoke our trust from those systems and let us offer our trust to one another in our moments of deepest vulnerability and marginalization. Let us take our doubt and skepticism away from people who are speaking of their own experience and let us lay it at the feet of those systems who have harmed them. We need to reorient, we need to bring our skepticism to the right place and to the right people. So that when someone vulnerable says, I've been hurt, we don't respond with prove it. We respond with I believe you. How do we heal? Now our belief, no matter how intellectually committed we are to this, our belief, our physical orientation, 
That is held in our body. The skepticism we have been trained to offer to marginalized groups, the way that marginalized identities of every kind have not only been vilified, but cast as monsters. We have fears within us, internalized about our own identities and projected onto the identities of others. Marginalized identity has been disconnected from trust systematically by the powers that be. And so as we orient ourselves to the ways of the kingdom, as we shift our trust, our benefit of the doubt from those systems in power to the people in front of us, we may choose to believe and yet struggle with unbelief. And this is where the gospel offers another helpful lesson. A man who wanted healing, who wanted healing in his family, who came to Jesus and said, please heal me. This is all we're longing for, right? healing, that shifting back of trust from systems of abuse to our network of relationships, that's a healing shift. We long to be healed. And Jesus says, hey, if you believe, if you believe this is, this is possible. And the man, knowing himself, knowing his desire to believe, and yet all that wound, all of that generational disinformation in his being he responds with lord i believe help my unbelief and so we too turn to one another we choose to believe we acknowledge our unbelief and we ask for help from the holy spirit help our unbelief turn our unbelief into belief turn our doubting of one another into trust turn our trust of empire into skepticism May we all be doubting Thomases, but with our doubt oriented towards systems of power, may our trust be offered to one another, especially the vulnerable when speaking of their own identity, their own truth, the voice of God within them. May we listen and internalize, and may we all have power to heal. Will you pray with me? God of all things, we believe we believe that people speak the truth of their own experience. We believe trans kids. We believe the vulnerable. We believe you are who you say you are and that we are made in your image. God, may, uh, may we learn to believe one another. May we challenge dominant narratives of oppression. May we amplify one another's voices speaking truth. May we have the bravery and trust to discern when and where we can reveal our wounds to one another. And may we take seriously the gift when it is offered to us. God, we believe, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.